You are now listening to the December 24th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Disciples of Jesus Christ. The last time we looked at all 12 disciples who Jesus chose in the beginning and Matthias who replaced Judas Iscariot. Today, we will talk about Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles and probably the most influential person in church history although he didn't belong to the 12 disciples. Paul's original name is Saul, which is the same name as the first king of Israel. Scholars tell us that Saul is a Hebrew name, but Paul is the Greek pronunciation. Some people say that Saul was his name before he believed in Christ and Paul after he believed in Christ. But that's not true. In the book of Acts, There were changes that even Saul was called Saul in the beginning, and then all of a sudden, Saul called Paul. This is because Paul spread the teachings of Jesus to the Jews in the beginning, then to both Jews and Gentiles. It was at that time that his name changed. Paul was born in Tarsus, Sicilia, in the first century, a southern part of Turkey. Geographically, Tarsus was the main city and culturally the big city under the Roman Empire because it was a main trading city which connected east and west. That is why people in Tarsus were Roman citizens and they were proud of living in Tarsus. Paul's parents were Jewish with Roman citizenship and lived in Tarsus. Thus, Paul was born with Roman citizenship naturally. During that time, having Roman citizenship meant significant power, authority, and prestige. Paul's parents were known as being wealthy, and thus Paul was able to access various learning and knowledge. It is possible that Tarsus, where he lived, was the cultural hub. In addition, Paul was known to study the Hebrew Bible under the leading Pharisee, Gamaliel. If Paul learned from Gamaliel, he must have moved to Jerusalem as Gamaliel taught in Jerusalem. As for Paul's teacher Gamaliel, it's written in Acts 5, verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. Paul introduces himself in Acts 22.3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. It is written in Acts 5, verse 34, that Gamaliel is a Pharisee and Paul studied under him. Paul is also a Pharisee. By his own account in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, 
Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. As he said, Paul was not the apostle of Christ from the beginning. Rather, he rejected Jesus Christ and persecuted people who were Christians. After the resurrected Christ ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came to people who believed Jesus as Messiah at Pentecost, and the first church of Christians was born. However, soon after the first Christian church started, Hebrews, Pharisees, who didn't acknowledge Jesus as the promised Messiah, started persecuting Christians. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons that Jesus died on the cross was because of these people. They demanded Jesus be crucified on the cross because they refused to believe that he was the Messiah and that Jesus was harmful to their lives. Of course, all things happen within God's plan, which was to save sinners by sending his only son as the sacrificial offering. After the first church was born, Hebrews started persecuting churches, and Stephen was the first martyr from the persecution. Acts 6 writes about Stephen. Opposition arose from members of the synagogue of Jews against people who believed Jesus as the Messiah. The Jews were considered to have rejected God since they didn't believe Jesus as the Messiah as the Christians did. Thus, they persecuted Christians and shut their mouth not to say that Jesus was Messiah. And they accused Christians of being against Moses and against God and put them in jail. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Stephen conveyed the truth to the Sanhedrin and proclaimed that Jesus is the promised Messiah. At this, they dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul, which is written in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. That Saul is Paul. At that time, Paul thought Stephen deserved to be stoned. Paul loved God, and he thought stoning Stephen was for God's sake. Paul believed that Jesus was not the Messiah, but he was an imposter who confused people. Churches in Jerusalem began to be persecuted after Stephen's martyrdom. It was at this time that the followers of Jesus moved to avoid the persecution. It was Paul who played an important role in the Christian persecution. Paul searched Christian churches, put followers into jail, and closed the churches. When followers moved to avoid Paul and the Pharisees, anywhere they went, they spread the gospel and increase the number of followers of Jesus. Paul was sent to many places to seize Christians and put them into jail. So what caused Paul to become an apostle? We will continue on next time. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is the light of the world. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. I want us to look at the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read the familiar account of Jesus' birth, and you have heard it many times. Some of you, um, you don't hear it a lot frequently, but uh, let me just read it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went up with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known to them what had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Why would the Bible record shepherds, the people that never were trusted, the people who they said, don't ever trust their witness? Why would he go to shepherds? If I were writing the Bible at my Bible writing party, I would not have written it like that. I would have had, you know, religious leaders from Jerusalem, the priests, whatever. I would have them going, and they would go, yes, the angel spoke to us, and yes, we confirm that this is the Messiah. But instead, the Bible records things really, even if it looks like, really? Shepherds? Now, in this case, I believe that one of the things that the Lord is saying is, look, I accept everybody, even shepherds. You know what Jesus was accused of all the time? He was accused of, like in Luke 15, the accusation was, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It was very snarky. That was the accusation by the religious leaders against Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them. The word receives 
means I've seen some of you do that. This evening you go and you hug somebody. Hey, it's great to see you. That's receives. Hug on. This man, Jesus, he receives sinners and eats with them. You would only eat with people you accepted. Another time, the uh, religious leaders saw Jesus eating with sinners, and they complained that he was eating and drinking with them. He complained to Jesus' disciples, and they said, you know, kind of an aside, why is your your master eating and drinking with sinners? Jesus overheard it, and Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to help those who are well. I didn't come as a doctor for people who aren't sick. I have come, he said. I have come not to call the righteous but sinners. See, Jesus Jesus accepts us. And we look at this manger and we look at how God became flesh. Jesus has always been God. He didn't become God when he, he was born in Bethlehem. He's always been God. He just added humanity, you might say, to himself when he came into the world. He's always been God. So God loves us no matter who you are. When you come to Jesus in sincerity, you will be accepted. Those shepherds sitting in the dark clueless, rejected, not knowing what to do, just kind of sitting there. All of a sudden, God showed them this amazing good news. And the good news was, okay, go to Jesus. (laughs) Go to Jesus. And it said they made haste. And they booked it to Jesus. And there they put their faith in him. You see, it's not just good enough to hear good news. Glory to God in the highest. There is a Savior born for you. And you sit there and say, whoa, that was amazing. You've got to get up and do something about it. Amen? You know, just sit there. You go with haste to Jesus and with sincerity, you bow to him. Jesus accepts us just where we are. There's such a misunderstanding about Christianity, and that says you've got to clean up somehow before you can come to Jesus or, or become a believer in Jesus. It's nonsense. When could you ever be good enough for Jesus to say, oh, now you're good enough to come to me? Because all what we do, everything we've done is tainted. Nothing any of us do is perfect. And God requires perfection. Say, if you're waiting to become perfect for God to accept you, look, God says, I won't even meet you that way. God says, I'll just meet you right where you are. That's my plan. And I just have to say, thank you, God, that you're that kind of God. The next thing that I've pulled out of this that I saw that I thought was remarkable is that God loves you very much. Now, when I was first thinking about this, I literally wrote out my notes, and it was God loves us very much. And it was kind of like the, I don't hear voices, you know, but... It was like I was just stirred up inside that don't say us very much. You need to say God loves you very much. Because I kind of think the reason why God did that is because there is a you here that really needs to know that God loves you. 
So, hey, this whole thing was changed for you. Think about it that way. God knew you'd be here. God doesn't, nothing is coincidental with God. He knew you'd show up here. He knew at service, he knew at church. He knew when you'd come with friends or family. That's amazing. So you could hear just one thing, that God loves you. You know, when you really love somebody, if you know they want something, you're going to go to any, just to, to the farthest to try to get it for the person. I mean, you want to get them. I mean, if it's an extravagant thing, you're thinking, I love them so much, I want to give them that. And you might do without something for the next year in order to give those you love or someone you love what they desire. You know John 3.16. Everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that he what? Gave. You cannot separate loving from giving. God loves you so much, so very much. Not because you're good enough. The thing that I wonder about is how God can accept me, you know? God loves me. He doesn't want me to live in fear. There's a phrase that I hear over and over. I've read over and over as so I'm reading these gospel accounts of, of the birth of Jesus. There's one phrase that was said to Zechariah, that was said to Mary and to Joseph, it's the same, and to the shepherds. The same phrase. Can anybody guess it? Yes, that's right. The last group didn't get it. Fear not. Do not fear. You see, Christianity is not a religion of fear. When God brings the good news to us, yeah, we realize, I'm not really good. God says, don't fear, because it's not about you. It's about this son. It's not about you. It's about this son that's born. I just want you to come quickly and with sincerity receive him. That's the message that God is saying here. For this the love of God was shown to us in that he gave his only begotten son that we might believe in him. I read a story I, I want to tell you about that when I first read it just brought me to tears about a father in Spain who was estranged from his son. He got to be so bad that his teenage son ran away from home. Well, the broke his father's heart and he began a journey to search for his estranged son. Finally, he got to Madrid, and in a desperate effort to find him, the father placed an ad in the newspaper. The ad was simple. It read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. They were all seeking the love and forgiveness of their father. Are you a Paco? Maybe. Seeking the love and forgiveness. God has that for you. 
God has it. Fear not. I bring you good tidings of a great joy. Your Father in heaven loves you. He loves you so much that he gave you the greatest gift of all. I also see pulling out from this, uh, this whole narrative is I see that God knows your needs. God knows what our needs are. For today is born for you a Savior who is Christ. That, we need a Savior. God knows us. He knows just what we need. Uh, there are four essential issues that people deal with around the world, whether they're a third world country or a first world country or poor, the rich. Wherever you live, this is a problem that everyone has and it is a problem of emptiness, of emptiness. There is an empty, listen, I know you're saying, oh, I'm not empty. You may be like my van. We have an old Honda minivan, and its fuel indicator lies. <laughs> it tells me it is full. And I found out if you let it get anywhere between half, you're going to run out of gas. It thinks it's full, but it's really empty. I go halfway, and I think we got to go to the gas station. And, you know, it's $100, whatever it is, to fill it up. See, whether you know it or not, there is a God-shaped place in your life. And until that, nothing will click into place. You think, oh, I'm all together. No, not like you will be when God, through Jesus Christ, comes into your life. Now, you know, I'm not into puzzles People I know love them. People I, I love, you know, put them together. Their, their idea of joy at Christmas is they have the whole dining room set up for a 10,000 piece, you know, or something possible. Yeah, I'm going, no, I want to run away from that. It freaks me out. So the other day I'm thinking, well, I'll go to Goodwill. I'm at Goodwill. I see all these puzzles up here, boxes of puzzles. And they're cheap. And I think, well, maybe I'll give it a chance. And then about the time, and I'm looking at even the pictures. That's how close I got. I'm thinking, well, this isn't too bad. Why are all these the pictures ugly, by the way? And I just wonder about that. But I finally said, oh, that'll be, I start to reach for it, and then something stopped me. It was, wait a minute, Mark. You're going to be the person that buys the puzzle that is missing the one piece. And then you'll be visiting me in a hospital or something after that happens. No, I'm telling you, there's a God-shaped peace in your heart. And you understand it when Christ comes into your life. Remember, he is who he said he is. You go back to your quarter in the state of Texas someplace. He is who he says he is. And he says, without me, you are empty. Within everybody's life, too, there, another felt need people have is they have, they struggle with loneliness. I think that has been really brought out in the last year plus as, as people have been separated and quarantined from each other and 
not allowed to gather or you know, have the kind of family associations that we're used to. And there's this loneliness that has been experienced. And suicides were up because of loneliness. Because essentially, we cannot be alone. We're not designed to be all by ourselves. What? No, look, babies, when they're born, left all by themselves. No, they're fed and changed. But with no human interaction, left all by themselves, fail to thrive. You've read the studies. You understand that, right? We have to have interaction. And when we don't, that emptiness and that loneliness starts to just eat away at us. Well, one of the names of Jesus that we even sung about, the Hebrew word is Emmanuel, which means literally God with us. Jesus came to be Emmanuel for you, not just for the whole world, but God with you. You won't be alone when you have Jesus as Savior because the Bible says he comes into us and he lives with us, he abides with us forever. Another thing that people um, struggle with all over the world is with their guilt. Man, guilt can feel like a backpack that is just you can't carry anymore. Guilt, to try to live with it, people, they try to, to... push it away, numb themselves to their guilt. A lot, of, a lot of people that I've talked to, they're into addictions and stuff. You, you look back and, and it starts, there's something that happened. And there's a guilt associated, not all the time, I understand that, but a lot of times it makes people sick. They self-medicate or they think they have to stay away from God because they're guilty. I, years ago, talked to a guy who came into to talk to me, and he told me that he had burned down his house for the insurance money, and he felt guilty about it. (laughs) Well, I told him what he needed to do, but as far as I know, he never did it. And so you know what? He's living with that guilt. If he hasn't made it right, really until then, even if he got a new house, he realized, oh, that money came from what I did that I shouldn't have done. You know, all his life, he's going to live with that guilt. What do you do with guilt? How can you get rid of guilt? Well, there's only one way to get rid of guilt, and that is to understand what Jesus has done for us. Jesus can forgive us. Let me explain. When we've done something and we're guilty, usually there's payment or consequence, right? The Bible says that when we sin, we sin against God, the wages of that sin, the consequence of that sin is death. And so that is, shall, that is should not perish. It's the perishing part of John 3.16. We're going to die because of our sin. We can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. If that's going to happen, it's going to have to come from God initiating that. God is going to have to be the one who will move and take the first step. And then what does God have to do to undo the guilt? 
You can't go to a judge and you've really stolen the car. And even if the judge loves you, he can't say, well, you're off the hook. But the judge could maybe say, I will take the blame. Punish me. I'll take her place. That can be on my record. Acquit him. And that's exactly what the good news of great joy is all about. It's that Jesus Christ came in order to take our sin away. And the way he did it was, you've seen the cross. Why why is it this emblem of Christianity? Why do you see a crucifix with Jesus hanging on the cross? Because it's a picture of how our guilt is taken away and how we're given eternal life. You see, on the cross, you see Jesus with his hands crucified. And I've given that some thought. I said, why are his hands crucified? And I realized, well, his hands never did anything wrong. They just reached out to heal people, to help people, right? But I have done things. I've reached out to do wrong things. You've stolen things. You've taken things, you know. My hands deserve to be nailed to that cross, but Jesus took my place. I look at his feet, and as I look at that cross, I see they're nailed to the cross. And I'm thinking, why, why, why are his feet? He never went any place he shouldn't do. He lived a perfect life. No one contests that. Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. So he never went any place he shouldn't go. But you guys, we have, and we know that. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way. We're the ones who deserve that punishment, but he took it for us. I see that crown of thorns, don't you? And I wonder, why is he crowned with thorns? He never thought impure thoughts. He never imagined things that he shouldn't have. He never did that, but... Of course, we have, haven't we? He took our punishment. And then there's that pierced heart, you know, that spear that went through his heart. And the heart represents love. Jesus loved the Father with perfect love. But hey, there's some of us that you haven't even given God a thought, much less thought about loving him. And none of them love him perfectly. Yet his heart took the punishment. You see, the way our sins are forgiven is that Jesus took the punishment for our sins. He took the guilt of our sins. It was put on him willingly. He, that's this baby. He didn't come to be a baby. He came to grow up to be a perfect God-man and to take our sins upon him And then he said, I will die. That's the punishment we deserve. I will be buried. That's the punishment we deserve. But three days later, I will rise from the dead. And the resurrection is like the receipt that says it's paid in full. That's what it's all about. You understand that's the good tidings. That was the great, that was the news the angels were talking about. So... You've heard that there's one last thing that people are freaked out about. Every culture, and that is death. The pharaohs thought that they could escape death by having 
every organ mummified, you know, and being placed in these tombs and taking stuff with them and, and that they'd be safe and they'd have everything they need. No. There's all sorts of other philosophies. Down deep, listen, we've thought more about death in the last year or so than we ever have. All of us have. I've lost more friends this year than I ever have. Death is real. Insurance companies understand that, don't they? You don't have to fear death. Because Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead, he has conquered death. He has looked death in the face, and he says, death, you cannot hold on to me. As he rose from the dead, he showed that he is alive He has victory over death, and he says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but shall have, what? Everlasting life. And that's what that's all about. So what are you going to do? You're sitting in the dark, maybe. You're kind of doing your job like the shepherds, sitting in the dark. All of a sudden, you've heard this message. This angel, just for the sake of illustration, I'm the angel, okay, telling you good news. Now, what are you going to do with it? The shepherds, they made haste. They ran to Jesus. And with sincere faith, they gave their lives to the Messiah. And that's what God wants you to do if you haven't done that. Hey, like I said, it's not coincidence that you're here. God brought you here because he loves you, he accepts you. But he knows what you need, and you need Jesus You need that emptiness, that loneliness, that guilt taken away. Now, what do you do? You run to Jesus. You're a shepherd running because of what you heard to Jesus. This is what the Bible says. How do you do that? The Bible says if we just call on God, if we just pray, God will accept us, God will forgive us, God will save us, and he says, I will make you a new creation. I'll give you a new life, and he does that. So this is what I'm going to invite you to do on this Christmas Eve because Jesus would say, this is what I want you to do. I didn't come just to be a baby. I came to die. They need to hear that. But then they need to understand that I am now the one who has the gift of eternal life and I'll give it to those who place their trust in me. So I'm going to ask you to pray. This is what we're going to do. We're going to bow our heads. Let's do that right now. Let's close our eyes. I want you to, to, to pray this prayer if you've never received Jesus, okay? You've never come to him in sincere faith. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. You don't have to pray it. Please don't pray it out loud. Let's just pray it, you, me, and the Lord, okay? That's just between us. But you pray this with sincerity. God knows it. God will accept you and God will save you. Lord's tugging on your heart right now. So pray this prayer with me. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for all the wrong things I've done. I'm sorry for my sin. I believe that you died for me and that you were buried and that you rose from the dead 
and you'll give me eternal life right now. Please now make me a new person. Give me, give me a new start. Fill my life. Change me, Lord. Please, I want you to be the master, the Lord, and the Savior of my life. Keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed. Just pray for those around you. You prayed that prayer and you mean business with God. I know you do. Now, Jesus, Jesus made it clear that, that he always asks his followers to get up and follow him, to be open and public about it. He, he doesn't want secret followers. This is what I'm going to ask you to do, to show your decision for Jesus, seriously to show it. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you come forward. I understand that just might be so tough. But what I am going to ask you to do, wherever you're seated, I want you to raise your hand. Everybody's praying for you, but you know what God has done. If you've asked Jesus, I want you to raise your hand, go down high right now, and keep your hand up, okay? <clears throat> As your hands are up, <clears throat> somebody's giving you a booklet. Don't put your hand down once you have the booklet. I'll tell you why. You'll understand in a minute. Keep your hands up. Good and high. Right up here. Right up here. Right here. Right here. If you don't have a packet, kind of wave your hand because it's so hard to see in a darkened room, okay? Anybody else? It's not too late. You say, oh, I wish I would have prayed that prayer now. Uh, get your hand up, okay? God knows your heart. Anyone else? Eternal life's the best gift you'll ever get. Anyone else? I want to pray for you. Lord, you've seen us. We have our hands raised. And what I think of right now is you said that when you save us, you will grab us by the hand and you will never let go of us. Can you imagine that, you guys? God's taking your hand and he says he won't let go of you, ever. Okay, put your hands down. I want to welcome you to the family of God. God bless you.
Cause I've said why me I'm just a simple man of trade Why him with all the rulers in the world Why him inside this stable filled with hay Why her she's just an ordinary Such a strange way to say the word to think of how it could have been if Jesus had come as he deserved. Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. 
If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, as we were singing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, we all recognize that the Christian life is all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about walking with Jesus Christ. It's all about talking to him by prayer and listening to his word and trusting him in what he has said. It's all about Jesus Christ. And as we recognize that it's all about Jesus, we recognize also we have an enemy who wants to pull us away from that relationship, to cause that relationship to be divided or strained or whatever it might be. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20 was very concerned And in his final words to the Ephesian elders, shared to them that from among their own selves, men would arise speaking perverse things. And he said, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. There is a real danger to our walk with Jesus Christ. And so often we think that real danger to the walk of Jesus Christ is somewhere else. But as we're going to see today, that real danger is within the body of Christ. Would you turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to see how we can keep from being exploited by false teachers as we understand the true, genuine threats to our growth in Jesus Christ. Now the context of the book of 2 Peter We've seen so far that the Apostle Peter is writing to believers who have a same faith as theirs. True believers have the same faith as the Apostles had. Trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of sins. And we've seen that the book of Second Peter is simply about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then also about the threats that are possible that might cause us not to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, that might cause us to be tripped up in our relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll remember that we have seen, we have everything pertaining to life and Godliness through the true knowledge of Him. It's through this true knowledge that we grow in the context of the Word of God in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And we saw within that God has given us His Word, given us everything we need, and within that He calls upon us to act by faith, to step out in faith in accordance to what we know about Christ and in our relationship with Him based on the Word of God. We should be manifesting the character of Christ in real time, exhibiting moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And if we are manifesting these things, it is an evidence that by faith we are trusting in Jesus, His Word is working in us, and we are neither useless or unfruitful in our relationship with Jesus. 
And then the apostle Peter said very clearly that he was always ready to remind us of these things, that it was the right thing to stir us up by way of reminder, that we would be able to recall these things to mind, and the believers there after he left. These were the apostle Peter's final words as the Lord had made it clear that his death was imminent, his going to the Lord was soon. And then we saw Peter remind them of the absolute reliability of the more sure word, more sure than any experience, even an experience that is a genuine one, Peter having an experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. But we have the prophetic word made more sure, which we do well to pay attention. We have the scriptures, which we need to listen to and heed. Otherwise, our relationship with Jesus is going to be hindered, as we're going to say. Now, last time we were together, we saw that Peter made it clear that we need to know something first and foremost, that no prophecy of the written word, Scripture, literally becomes one's own personal interpretation. Why? Because no prophecy ever came by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. God's Word is simply that, God's Word, and thus in context we need to heed it. It is the means in which we grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's from this point he moves into chapters 2 and 3 in which we have a contrast with God's sufficient word, which is everything we need, to those who would attack the sufficiency of the word of God and are a danger to our walk with Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, would you turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 2, if you're not already there. And actually, I want to back up to chapter 1, verse 19, and then read through our passage. 2 Peter 1.19, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Then our passage, but... False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We're going to see today the reality that false teachers will arise within the church. And we're going to see what they will do and the effect it will have on the body of Christ, and then what God will do and what God will do in relationship to them. So with this in mind, how can we keep from being exploited? Well, first of all, we need to recognize God makes it clear that they will arise within the body of Christ. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. That's a pretty scary statement when you think about it. Notice he begins with the term but. There's a contrast here. In contrast to God's word, which is of no one's interpretation, you can't take what you want to make out of it. It's God's intended meaning. He spoke. It's from him. In contrast to that, there's going to be bad guys that arise. 
In contrast to the Word of God, which is sufficient for everything that God uses it, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. In contrast to that, there are bad guys, as we're going to say. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. You see, you've got the Word of God. You've got everything you need by the power of the Spirit in the context of faith for your relationship with Jesus. But there's going to be dangers and threats to that. And Peter, in his final words, shares this truth. You see, the statement here is a statement of fact. Look at verse 1 again. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. This is a statement of fact that we must understand, that we must grasp, because if we don't, we might be exploited by false teachers who share false words. We might be carried away by the error of unprincipled men, as we see, and fall from our own steadfastness, chapter 3, verse 17. There are real, genuine dangers to our walk with Jesus Christ. Real, genuine dangers. There are those who would come in, as we're going to see, who would subvert, diminish, attack, lessen, dismiss, or twist the Word of God. So Peter reminds them right away about something that has happened as a basis for something that will happen. You know, it's interesting, if you recognize certain things that have happened and there is a warning about something in the future, those things strengthen that because you know of that real event. For instance, someone might warn, let's say there's credible information that there might be another attack like 9-11. Just like 9-11, there's going to be another one. You see, we have a better picture of what's going on. And notice what he says here. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. You know something? From before, you've seen it, you understand it, and you're reminded of it, and those examples help us understand what is coming in the future. Notice he's referring to the fact among God's people, God's chosen people, Israel, there were false prophets who arose among the people. Now we're going to get to this term, false prophet, in a minute. But we've seen what prophets are, as we looked in Matthew chapter 7, and we've seen what false prophets are. But a prophet is one who speaks for God, one who says, thus saith the Lord. And there were prophets, God's true prophets, in Israel, but there were also false prophets. We looked at this before, but turn to Jeremiah 23. We see what true prophets do. Jeremiah 23, verse 21, and you'll keep your finger in there because we're going to go back to it in a minute after I read this. The Lord God says, I did not send these prophets, Jeremiah 23, 21, But they ran. I didn't speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Prophets, true prophets, spoke for God. They spoke His word. We saw that earlier. I just read it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. That no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, right? For no prophecy was ever made of an act of human will, but men moved along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It never came from man. It never came from their imagination. never came from anything. They spoke for God. 
But we see back in Second Peter chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people. Pseudo-prophetes, false, untrue. They're not true prophets, they're false. And he's making the point that there have always been false prophets, as we see. There always have. They arose among the people. I shared this passage last week, but in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30, an appalling, horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets who prophesy falsely and the priests who rule in their own authority. And my people love it so. He's talking about the reality that Israel was riddled with false prophets. You look in the Old Testament, you see throughout there were God's true prophets telling them to repent of their sin. And there were the false prophets who were not God's who were sharing, hey, you're okay with God. Don't worry about it. You're fine. Everything's good. Throughout, and you can read in Jeremiah chapter 23 later on, but throughout there, there's a description of these false prophets who speak from the deception of their own hearts. They prophesy false things, dreams. They relate them. They lead God's people astray with falsehood. So everyone at this time Peter is writing understood there used to be and there were false prophets in Israel. And you look back in the scriptures, you go, hey, that's what was there. So he says back in 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. Peter is warning of the reality that in the church those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those who have believed in him, those who are true believers, there will be false prophets who arise among you, just as surely as it has happened and did happen in Israel, it will happen among you. The absolute certainty, it's true. It's in the midst. And who is the you here? As we look at it, they will arise. There will also be false teachers among you. That you, if you look back in chapter 1, are those who have a like faith in Jesus Christ. They're true believers. They're going to arise among you. Among you, there will be in your midst. They will be, literally. So some of you might be saying, how is it that false teachers would be a threat to believers? They've already come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, they're obviously a threat to entering into the kingdom, those who aren't saved. And certainly in the church, there are those who haven't trusted in Christ yet that God is working on, hopefully drawing to himself that they might respond. But we also know that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the way that we grow is by his word. We grow in our relationship with Jesus. As we saw earlier, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. We have his precious and magnificent promises. We have them. And so false teachers will twist those things to exploit us, as we're going to see, so that we would be ineffective in our relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus would basically be null and stunted. Very serious thing because our relationship with Jesus is everything. As we're going to see, they will try to exploit with false words. But we know from Scripture, from 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Thessalonians 2, that God uses his word to grow us in respect to salvation, our relationship with Jesus. And so Satan, through his bad guys, attacks that, as we're going to see. Now on a side note, notice how the Apostle Peter at the end of his life says there were false prophets and there will be false teachers. 
I believe Peter is alluding to the reality that God no longer at this point was speaking through prophets, but his word was completed and being finished at this point, and he would then speak through those who would teach his word. Now certainly later on there would be false prophets who would arise, people who claim to be prophets, but ultimately there would be those within the church who would be false teachers. He's saying that right here. There will be false teachers. So with this in mind, notice what he says. He says, there will be false teachers who arise among you or in your midst. The reality is real. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And for us, this is hard to take in. We go, well, how is that going to happen? It's hard to think that people would deliberately twist things to manipulate people, that they would be that evil to do so. But he says it will happen. And these would come up from within the church. He says they will be in you or among you. Now, we read Acts 20 earlier, but I want to read it again. Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is called the Ephesian elders, and he knows them very well. He spent three years teaching them. He spent three years teaching the church, and he calls them to Miletus to share his final words. He shares the basis of the ministry that Christ had done through him, which was the word of God. And then he shares his concern for threats to that. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Very important. You better guard the sheep. You better shepherd them. You better feed a sheep, right? And notice what he says. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then look at verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking twisted things and perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul was sharing the threats were coming and he was concerned about them. Threats to your relationship with Jesus, which is everything. Threats to your relationship with Jesus. Just like it happened to Israel, it will happen in the church. That's what Peter is saying. It's absolutely certain. So brothers and sisters, let's not be naive. There will be in the midst of the church false teachers. They're not God's teachers, they're false teachers, but they portray themselves to be such. They disguise themselves, right? We saw last week in Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing or shepherd's clothing. They portray themselves to be his shepherds. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And God is warning us, but God is gracious, because if we're willing to heed the word and be built up, we will no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men. If we're willing to grow in his word and understand and be able to discern, we won't get caught up by these things. We'll take the warnings and heed them. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, or workers of deceit, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 
And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising, or not, we don't marvel at it, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. This is something that's hard for us to grasp. People disguise themselves. They are actually portraying themselves as something that they are not. That's what Satan does, and that's what his servants do. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And listen to what the apostle Paul says in his final words to Timothy. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And when you read that up to that point, you think, man, I could spot these guys really quick, couldn't I? Well, notice the next sentence. Holding to a form of godliness. These people are people who claim to follow the Lord. He says, godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jabez opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those came to be. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. It's going to proceed from bad to worse. Brothers and sisters, back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter is not saying that it might happen. He is saying that it will happen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.